Hello everyone, just a quick note to say that because of our unusual recording circumstances this month, which we'll explain in a minute, there was a bit of interference on our mic now and then during this episode. So sorry about that, we'll look out for it next time. Anyway, on with the show. Hello, Ooh. welcome to Irish Passport. Uh, let's do it. Welcome to the Irish Passport. I'm Tim McInerney. I'm Naomi O'Leary. We're friends. Can you hear Naomi? Anwar Fad Tim. This is your passport to Irish culture, history and politics. Uh-huh. I'm recording. One, One two, two, three. three. Okay. Welcome to the Irish Passport, where we are on part three of our mini-series on the Irish War of Independence. Yes, we are. We are doing everything we can, Naomi, because you are on location and you are still coming to us. We are, we, <laughs> we are doing travelling podcasts once again. Yeah, just to describe where I am, and in case it sounds funny, I hope it doesn't, I'm actually in the cupboard of a conference room in the basement <laughs> of a hotel where I'm on holidays. This is the best uh, audio that I could find. It was this sort of like traffic. So anyway, um, yeah, that's that's where you find me today. It's not the weirdest place we've recorded to. We (laughs) we recorded from, we can assure you of that. Um, It's probably up there. But yeah, I have done a bathroom before. But yeah, my main concern is that if anyone comes in to use the conference room, I'm going to have to come out of the cupboard. And then... It will seem insane. Anyway. The only thing you can do, Naomi, is completely own it and be very confident and walk out the door. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. You've got podcasters in the building. That explains everything. So from the cupboard and 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 from my, my my own location, which is way less weird, we are yes on part three of our in, uh, of our little mini series on the War of Independence. So if you haven't heard the first two installments on this War of Independence mini series, do go back and listen to those two before you listen to this, because you'll probably be completely lost otherwise. Yeah. Um. So. If you're coming in, tuning in on the War of Independence topic for the first time, do go back and give a listen to those and we will meet you back here. Right. Now, there are there is loads to get through on this one because we're talking about one of the most significant events to take place during the War of Independence, and that is the Partition of Ireland. This obviously is a biggie. And actually, there's mm. far more to say about the Partition of Ireland than we have time to cover in just one episode. So in this one, we're mostly going to focus on the context of how the partition of Ireland fit into the whole jigsaw of independence before the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921. Yeah, right. So I'm not actually going to recap what we've already covered all over again, (laughs) Naomi, because we just don't have time. Mm -hmm. Uh, So instead, I'll just remind everyone of where we're at. In our last two episodes, we explored how after the 1916 Rising, Ireland erupted into revolution against British rule. The the Republican Sinn Féin party subsequently formed its own independent government called Dáil Éireann after winning a landslide victory in the 1918 general election. And that government soon went into hiding as London sent in a crack team of new recruits called the Black and Tans to put down the revolution. In that 1918 general election, however, one part of the island stood out. In the northeast of Ireland, the cultural context was distinct from the rest of the island in multiple ways. This was the site of massive colonial plantations in the 17th century, and much of the Protestant population who lived there still held close cultural and political ties to Britain. 
the Protestant population of Ulster at the beginning of the 20th century was somewhere between eight and 900,000 people, which was a really substantial chunk of the island's population as a whole. The northeast of Ireland was also significantly industrialised, which marked it out from the rest of the island, you know, quite distinctly. That industry, in turn, supported a huge working class in cities like Belfast, who often had very different economic concerns from the agrarian peasantry who populated the rest of the island. Um, certainly, many people in the industrial northeast would have felt that they had very little to gain from this complete political and economic revolution that was being championed by Irish Republicans. Unsurprisingly, given all this, most of the constituencies in the province of Ulster had not voted for Sinn Féin. Instead, the majority had voted for the Irish Unionist Alliance, a conglomeration of mostly conservative, pro-British political parties in Ireland, which had come together a few decades previously to oppose growing demands for home rule or self-governance in Ireland. The IUA was headed by the Dublin barrister, Sir Edward Carson, who had become an iconic figure for unionist resistance against Irish self-government and who would soon go on to become part of the breakaway Ulster Unionist Party. And we'll get to that in a little bit. It wasn't just unionism either that stood out in Ulster during that 1918 general election. The older, more moderate nationalist party, the Irish Parliamentary Party, they had still clung on to six parliamentary seats in that election. And five of those seats were in Ulster. Namely, they were Tyrone North East, Down South, Donegal East, Armagh South and Belfast Falls. This is significant because remember, the Irish Parliamentary Party did not stand on a platform of full independence from the UK like Sinn Féin. They had fought for decades for home rule, which would mean self-governance in Ireland within the UK. Remember, the Irish Parliamentary Party had been the most popular political force in Ireland for a generation before this. In the previous few elections, before the 1916 Rising turned Irish politics on its head, the Irish Parliamentary Party had won even bigger majorities than Sinn Féin would win in 1918. Right. So the resilience of the Irish Parliamentary Party in Ulster points to a fundamentally different context for nationalism in this part of Ireland. In much of this territory, people lived in extremely mixed communities. For instance, lots of nationalists in Ulster might have lived in towns and villages where the vast majority of the population were unionist. The majority of their friends and co-workers might have been unionist, or maybe they lived in a predominantly nationalist area where there was a significant minority of the community who were unionist, or where there might have been a predominantly unionist town just up the road. You know, whatever the case, the doctrines of radical republicanism, which had come to dominate politics in the overwhelmingly nationalist South, must have looked very, very different from a northern perspective. You can see that for many nationalists in Ulster, the more moderate option of home rule might have been much more appealing than the increasingly militaristic tones coming from the South. Let's take a listen to Dr. Connor Mulva, Senior Lecturer in History at University College Dublin. Unionists have a really good day at the polls in the, nor- in the North East. So we do have a kind of a, a creation of that uh, in the way the polls work. And that's the last time that people get to opine at the ballot box and where they stand on the national question. The uh, home rule constitutional nationalist moderate Joe Devlin, who uh, is, is the leader of constitutional nationalism in Northern Ireland, he beats De Valera by a massive margin uh, in West Belfast and De Valera runs across multiple seats. You'll know from previous episodes, listeners, that there was a certain irony in all this. It was Ulster Protestants who had originally championed Irish republicanism before the Act of Union in 1801. 
Protestant Ulster had led the charge in the 1798 rebellion against British rule, which was the main reason for Ireland being inducted into the United Kingdom in the first place. And that historical tradition was still a key piece of rhetoric for Republicans in the South during the War of Independence. Remember, some of the most iconic rebel leaders in 1916 and afterwards were Protestants, and by invoking 1798, there was a sense that the old traditions of radical republicanism might be reignited among Ulster Protestants too. But as it happened, things turned out to be very different. Tim, you're going to explain why. Yes, I am. And Naomi, you knew it was coming. It is time for me to take us back further in time to look at the longer context mm-hmm. for all this. <laughs> I feel like we need to have back in time music that comes <laughs> at this point. <laughs> 100%, yeah, some dreamy. Yeah. Um, so how far back are you taking us this time? Okay, well, not too far, don't worry. About 50 years. Uh, Because in order to understand the roots of partition, um, which happened during the War of Independence, we really have to understand the political fight for home rule, which was the main backdrop to partitionist sentiment right up until and during that War of Independence. So if we go back to the 1870s, we're going back to a time when home rule was the predominant form of nationalist agitation in Ireland. Like we've said, the idea of home rule was to secure some form of self-government in Ireland within the UK, where there would be a legislature in Ireland to deal with Irish domestic affairs, even while it officially formed part of the United Kingdom. Right. And this idea didn't come out of nowhere. In a manner of speaking, the proposition of home rule was not unlike the system that had been in place uh, before Ireland was inducted into the UK in 1801. Back then, there had been a separate colonial parliament in Ireland, which ran Ireland on a day-to-day basis, but which was ultimately subordinate to Westminster authority. And ever since that colonial parliament had been abolished, there had been an overarching feeling in Ireland that the Act of Union had been an economic and political disaster for the country, mainly due to chronic neglect from the London government. So for most people at this stage, it was a matter of urgency to establish some kind of local governmental body to once again manage Ireland's domestic affairs. However, there was one crucial difference between the pre-1801 Parliament and what was being proposed under Home Rule. Before the Act of Union, only the Protestant elite had been eligible for election to the colonial parliament. But now, 70 or so years later, Ireland's huge Catholic majority were also permitted to run for office. So that would mean that in any form of future home rule government in Ireland, um, there would almost inevitably be a majority Catholic assembly within the UK. Now, for some factions in Westminster, that was an unappealing prospect, and for multiple reasons. For centuries, the whole colonial project in Ireland had been built around keeping the Catholic majority out of political power. So obviously, this would have been a huge political concession by itself. It also went against this long-held strategy of systematically suppressing Catholic identity in Ireland and trying to recreate the island as a Protestant home nation of the UK. But not least, it would also chime awkwardly with the UK's constitutional tradition, which had largely been designed to prevent Catholic takeovers of government. At the same time, a growing contingent in Westminster had conceded that the Act of Union had failed miserably as a project in Ireland. Um, Many political figures in the UK's Liberal Party in particular felt that Home Rule was probably the most efficient way to quench political agitation in Ireland for good and to make Ireland just a more normal place, a more normal home nation like Scotland and Wales. 
Um, the Liberals also recognised that it was now impossible to ignore how popular Home Rule was in Ireland. Uh, in the 1885 UK general election, the uh, Irish Parliamentary Party, headed by the Nationalist leader Charles Stuart Parnell, they won 85 of Ireland's 103 seats, which, like we said, is you know even more than what Sinn Féin would win uh, some 30 years later. So this was a huge, huge, huge electoral majority who were shouting for nothing less than Home Rule every day. In a quite game-changing move, in the 1880s, Parnell managed to garner support for Home Rule from the British Prime Minister William Gladstone and his Liberal Party. Basically, Gladstone's reasoning was that Irish self-government was going to happen eventually anyway, so it would be better to get it done peacefully now and claim it as a win for Westminster instead of waiting for this whole situation to implode. So, in 1886, a year after the Irish Parliamentary Party's landslide victory, Gladstone introduced the first Home Rule Bill, known as the Government of Ireland Bill 1886. In Parliament, he stood up and made this mammoth three-hour speech about why the UK should grant Ireland Home Rule. Here's an extract from that speech. It's a little bit long, but I think it's worth looking at because it really demonstrates a pragmatic attitude to Ireland in the context of the British Empire, which really quite stands out in this history. Yeah, okay, so here it goes. Gentlemen speak of tightening the ties between England and Ireland as if tightening the tie were always the means to be adopted. Tightening the tie is frequently the means of making it burst, while relaxing the tie is very frequently the way to provide for its durability and to enable it to stand a stronger strain. It has been asked in this debate, why have we put aside all other business of Parliament? And why have we thrown the country into all this agitation for the sake of the Irish question? And here the transcript says that there's a cheer from the crowd saying, hear, hear. That cheer, Gladstone says, is the echo that I wanted. Well, sir, the first reason is this, because in Ireland the primary purposes of government are not attained. It is supposed that all the abuses of English power in Ireland relate to a remote period of history, and that from the year 1800 onwards, from the time of the Union, there has been a period of steady redress of grievances. Sir, I am sorry to say that there has been nothing of the kind. Have honourable gentlemen considered that they are coming into conflict with a nation? Can anything stop a nation's demand, except it being proved to be immoderate and unsafe? But here are multitudes, and I believe millions upon millions, out of doors, who feel this demand to be neither immoderate nor unsafe. In our opinion, there is but one question before us about this demand. It is as to the time and circumstance of granting it. The difference between giving with freedom and dignity on the one side, with acknowledgement and gratitude on the other, and giving under compulsion, giving with disgrace, giving with resentment dogging you at every step of your path, this difference is, in our eyes, fundamental. And this is the main reason not only why we have acted, but why we have acted now. Wow, it's an amazing speech. Isn't it? Yeah. Like, it's really remarkable to hear him say, we're dealing with a nation. Yeah, isn't it? That's Parnell's words coming through him, surely. <laughs> exactly. Like, it shows the success of Parnell in, yeah. like, introducing that idea, mainstreaming that idea. And also... um, the, you know, the way he talks about the different circumstances under which, like, self-rule could be granted mm. and, and giving it in disgrace and so on. It's almost prophetic. Yeah. Because, you know, obviously, in the decades to come, you know, it, giving it under compulsion is, is what ultimately happened. Absolutely. It's so clear-sighted. Yeah, it's really striking. So here's what Gladstone says next. 
Go into the length and breadth of the world. Ransack the literature of all countries. Find, if you can, a single voice, a single book. Find, I would almost say, as much as a single newspaper article, unless the product of the day, in which the conduct of England towards Ireland is anywhere treated except with profound and bitter condemnation. Are these the traditions by which we are exhorted to stand? No, they are a sad exception to the glory of our country. They are a broad and black blot upon the pages of its history. And what we want to do is to stand by the traditions of which we are the heirs in all matters except our relations with Ireland, and to make our relations with Ireland to conform to the other traditions of our country. Right, so... um. This is, by the way, a very abridged extract. Like I said, he goes on for three hours. And if you want to read all three hours of that speech, you can find it uh, freely available online, by the way. Um, but yeah, I think this speech is so fascinating. Just like he says there uh, at the end, you know, like this is the conduct in Ireland is embarrassing. It's internationally embarrassing. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be like yeah. that. You know, that if we if we make mm. these little concessions, that we can actually be seen as, you know, a giving and wonderful empire, which is like the image that he's trying to say that they have everywhere else, which, you know, isn't, uh, isn't so sure. Um, it is coming yeah. from an imperial standpoint. And he's saying this stuff in the interests of Britain and its empire. Like you said, Naomi, you know, it's so unusually clear-sighted. And I think, you know, he's, he's just saying this is obviously and demonstrably not going to go away. And by ignoring it or trying mm-hmm. to resist it, we're just going to cause even more problems for ourselves. And the fact that he's that this stands out so much, especially during these decades and even the whole 19th and 20th century, really, just shows how much this history is characterized by the opposite of this, right? By short-sighted, you know, counterproductive cycles of neglect and disregard, um, which had caused all these problems in Ireland in the first place. I think it's just such an interesting moment. What a find. Mm. Now, the reason that Gladstone had to make this speech was because some of his rivals in the Conservative Party were fighting tooth and nail against granting home rule to Ireland. (laughs) And there were a few reasons for the Conservative Party's opposition. The most commonly cited was simply that the Irish as a people were congenitally unable to govern themselves. Mm. Nice. Partly, of course, that's a stock imperial argument, but we partly we have to remember that a lot of people in Britain sincerely believed it to be true, on some level at least. For decades or centuries, rather, British conservatives had fairly consistently blamed the string of disasters in Ireland on a morally and intellectually defective population rather than recognising Westminster mismanagement. Yeah, right. And this was a really big concern, you know. So in that speech, um, I don't remember whether it's Gladstone or the opposition, but they're bringing up, you know, the 40%, what they say is 40% of Irish speakers in the West and saying things like, you know, how can we allow them to govern themselves, you know, as if they're just like, yeah, like you say, they're congenitally like incapable of it. Now, so these are the guys, basically, the Conservatives take up the role in this debate as saying, no, 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 Gladstone, we want to go back to the short-sighted counterproductive cycle of, of disregard and neglect. You know, like, they're basically standing up for what's been done before and what has been proved not to work. So, it's, you know, it's, it's a really hard one to argue. But um, on a more practical basis, aside from these kind of, you know, uh, kind of ignorant biases, uh, the Conservatives were worried about contagion. If Ireland was granted home rule... Who else in the empire was going to ask for the same thing, right? That was a question. Mm. You know, once they had set this precedent, there would be little excuse not to extend the same privilege to other troubled colonies. 
Also, of course, listeners might remember that there was a wider economic context to these nationalist concessions in the 1880s. Gladstone's support for Home Rule was all tied up with Westminster's strategy of constructive unionism. That was this um, strategy that had the aim of saving the union and which involved huge transfers of land from old colonial landowners to tenant farmers. Now, there would have been lots of people in British high society who had a lot of vested land interests in Ireland. And this was a trend that may not have pleased them at all. And of course, thirdly, the Conservatives and actually the Liberals were acutely aware that Irish nationalists like Parnell saw Home Rule as a potential stepping stone to greater autonomy from the UK. Um, And remember, this had happened before. Just before the Act of Union in 1801, the colonial Irish Parliament had used the American and the French revolutions to pressure Westminster into giving them more legislative freedom. And once they had those freedoms, they quickly set about clawing back even more power from the centralised government to gain more and more authority over Ireland. Parnell himself had more or less admitted that this was his long-term goal. In 1885, he made a speech in Cork referencing Henry Grattan, who'd won major legislative autonomy for the colonial parliament just before the Act of Union, and a home assembly in Dublin might achieve something similar. Parnell stated, No man has the right to fix the boundary to the march of a nation. No man has the right to say to his country, Thus far thou shalt go, and no further. One Conservative MP, a guy named Weston Jarvis, he stood up in Parliament in 1888 to point out this. He'd point out these undertones of what Parnell had been saying in his speeches around Ireland. So he refers to that Cork speech, and he says, That speech could have left but one impression upon those who listened to it. That was that if the National League and those associated with it desired that their policy should be the absolute separation of Ireland from England... He, for one, was not going to refuse to lead the van. So what were the Conservatives going to do? Here we have the British Prime Minister standing up and supporting Irish Home Rule, and some 80% of Irish constituencies were cheering him on. Home Rule, on the face of it, seemed like almost a done deal. Well, one person who thought he could find a way to foil Gladstone's plans was the Duke of Marlborough, a man called Lord Randolph Churchill. Yes, listeners, surprise, surprise, we're talking about Winston Churchill's dad. I don't know how Winston Churchill came to, like, (laughs) haunt our podcast so much in the last, like, nine months, Naomi. Uh, But he seems to be popping up where you least expect him. Um, Anyway, this is his dad. And because we mentioned him in a previous instalment on the War of Independence, I'm going to refer to his dad as Randolph, right? So it's Randolph Churchill. We're going to call him Randolph. Now, Randolph's own father was John Spencer Churchill, And John Spencer Churchill had acted as Lord Lieutenant of Ireland until 1880. And both John Spencer and Randolph's mother were famously arch-unionists. Now, a lot of that was to do with their personal finances. Randolph's mother's family in particular had huge land holdings in Ulster. I mean, I'm talking really, really big. And therefore, the extended family had major economic interest there. And accordingly, the family had long resented the Home Rule movement and had even opposed the disestablishment of the Church of Ireland because they saw that as a weakening of Westminster's grasp on Ireland. So Mm. Randolph had acted as unofficial private secretary to his father while his father was working in Dublin. 
So Randolph knew the Irish context really well, and he had these very long-held and kind of deep animosities towards Parnell and his supporters. Uh, He once described Parnell's supporters as nothing but the ignorant, idle and drunken. Speaking in Edinburgh three years before Gladstone proposed his first Home Rule Bill, Randolph Churchill had declared the following. Let the Irish know that, although they cry day and night, though they vex you with much wickedness and harass you with much disorder, though they incessantly divert your attention from your own affairs, though they cause you all manner of trial and trouble, that there is one thing you will detect at once, in whatever form or guise it may be presented to you, there is one thing you will never listen to, there is one thing you will never yield to, and that is their demand for an Irish Parliament, and that to their yells for their repeal of the Union you answer an unchanging and unchangeable and a unanimous no. Right. So setting the tone here. (laughs) Because Randolph Churchill had so many family connections among the landed elite in Ulster, he understood better than many British statesmen that one element of the Irish population could easily be instrumentalised against the seemingly inevitable march of home rule. And that was the Ulster Protestants, and particularly the radical anti-Catholic fraternity known as the Orange Order. Now, we've talked about the Orange Order loads uh, in past episodes, but just to recap... It had been founded back in 1795 um, to protect Protestant interests in Ireland. And that was around the same time, of course, when we have this doctrine of secular republicanism that was rising up among Protestants and Catholics and bringing bringing Protestants and Catholics together in opposition to uh, British rule. Now, the Orange Order had become even more militant after the repeal of the penal laws in 1829, because that, of course, had opened the way for Catholics to vote and to run for office. And then it had been revived more recently in the 1880s in opposition to the land war, where you have all these Catholic tenants who are demanding the sale of land open on the free market. So it had gained a lot of support from local landlords. So you might remember, actually, that the Orange Order was sent down to Captain Boycott's house to harvest the the grain when his tenants went on a rent strike. They were doing things like that. So they kind of got in, or the local landlords got in their pockets and vice versa, because both of them wanted to halt this transfer of land to Irish peasants. Now, the Orangemen, as they're known, they ran their organisation from a series of lodges, orange lodges around Ireland, and they would have these yearly marching festivals where they would celebrate Protestant military victories over Catholics, which frequently resulted in violence, and of course, which still go on to this day. Randolph Churchill's decision to, in his own words, play the orange card has gone down in history. Yeah, many observers called this out immediately as a cynical ploy. Because, you know, this is this is the situation here. Randolph Churchill and this branch of the Churchill family who owned land in Ulster, previously they had been very vocal about considering the Orange Order and anything like the Orange Order as beneath them. They had tried very hard to style themselves as like enlightened patriarchal reformers in Ireland. They had very little interest in this sectarian griping. They had even built Catholic churches for their tenants and they had promoted education among their Catholic tenants. You know, basically, they took what would have been seen as a modern free market approach to their land holdings. Like in their view, religious infighting was, you know, it was stupid. And most of all, it was unfavorable to developing the local economy as a whole. And it was going to lose them money. Right. So they had absolutely no interest in this. So they very much thought of sectarian organizations like the Orange Order, not only as backwards and disreputable, but also as directly harmful to their economic interests. 
And now, suddenly, we have Randolph Churchill becoming Mr. Orangeman, you know, setting out to stoke up the anti-Catholic anxieties of the Orange Order as much as possible. And as we'll see, telling them that they were the one last hope for saving the Union and even the Empire. Randolph was well aware that the whole conversation around home rule had made the Protestants of Ulster extremely anxious. The Act of Union of 1801 had galvanised Irish Catholics into an unprecedented political front, and it seemed likely that a home rule parliament was going to be proudly and openly Catholic in its outlook. The fact that the Liberals in Westminster now seemed to be siding with the home rulers made this situation ten times more worrying. So as the Home Rule Nationalists began to up the ante in their campaigning in the Protestant-majority counties of Ulster, they were increasingly faced with counter-demonstrations from the Orange Order. Those Orange Order demonstrations, in turn, were often supported by local landlords, who obviously had an interest in encouraging dissent against Home Rule. In 1884, Randolph made a speech in Parliament referring to the Home Rule movement as, quote, an invasion of Ulster, with, quote, the most magnanimous assistance from Her Majesty's government. He made allusions to the 1641 Gaelic rebellion against the plantations, and he declared that no one should be surprised that, quote, Ulstermen should strenuously resist an invasion of Ulster, which had for its object the repeal of the Union. There was, he said, one province and one people one race and one religion, which had resisted Parnell, and that was Protestant Ulster. Randolph certainly knew what he was doing here. In February 1886, just days after Gladstone had formed his government, he wrote to a correspondent that, quote, I decided some time ago that if Gladstone went for home rule, the orange card was the one to play. Please God, it may turn out the ace of trumps and not the two. A few days after that, Randolph travelled to Ulster to make a series of speeches and addresses at various orange lodges and public venues. Here's an extract from one now very notorious speech that he made on the 23rd of February 1886 called The Proposed Abandonment of Ulster. The Irish landlords are the natural leaders of the loyalists in Ireland, but by Mr Gladstone's policy, the power of the Irish landlords was greatly broken. It is wise on our part to look into the history of recent years, to take stock of it, to count up our gains and losses, and I think that you will find that you loyalists have had very few gains. The glamour of Mr Gladstone's prestige, the spell of Mr Gladstone's oratory, are still powerful in England over the minds of men. You are, gentlemen, I believe, in this great crisis, the first line of defence, the second line of defence, and the last line of defence. With you it primarily rests whether Ireland remains an integral portion of this great empire, sharing in all its glory, partaking in all its strength, benefiting by all its wealth, and helping to maintain its burdens. Or, on the other hand, Ireland shall become a focus and centre of foreign intrigue and deadly conspiracy. To me, as an Englishman, the issue of this struggle seems without doubt to involve the fate of the British Empire, If we cannot hold Ireland, obviously we cannot hold India. We cannot hold our supremacy over our colonies if we cannot govern this country. Randolph goes on to suggest that an Irish Home Rule Parliament would immediately be populated with leading figures from the Catholic Church, who would covertly govern the island from the Vatican. As would later become a rallying cry, he basically tells the Orange Lodges that Home Rule would equal Rome Rule. 
Randolph also denounced Parnell's strategy of organising boycotts against abusive landlords. He called them acts of intimidation and violence. To counter further agitation from the agrarian poor in the South, he said, the loyal Protestants of Ulster might need to start fighting like with like. He continues, The forces which Mr Parnell controls are brought into action by the most extraordinary system of organised intimidation which history can record. These forces are bred by foreign agencies and nourished by foreign gold, forces which act by murder, by assassination and by dynamite. It is by force such as these that the boasted five-sixths of the Irish people have been coerced into putting forward this demand for repeal. Does that entitle them to national independence? Now may be the time to show whether all those ceremonies and forms which are practised in orange lodges are really living symbols whether that which you have so carefully fostered is really the lamp of liberty. The time may be at hand when you will have to demonstrate this faith in a practical manner. The loyalists of Ireland should wait and watch, organise and prepare. The struggle is not likely to remain within the lines of what we are accustomed to look upon as constitutional action. Tommy, I'm telling you now that I want to spend a good bit of time discussing this speech in our half-pint debrief for this episode. Um, Definitely. There is just so much more to say. I was, I was just... There's a lot to unpack. There's a lot to unpack, isn't there? Mainly, I was really bowled over by how similar this rhetoric is to some of the populist language that we've become used to hearing from the British Conservatives yeah. since Brexit. Um, and especially when it yeah. comes to Northern Ireland, right? Um, yeah. So, like, for one thing, there's the whole framing of the issue in these kind of shamelessly disingenuous terms, right? The speech is titled The Proposed Abandonment of Ulster, you know, from the very get-go. It's basically completely misrepresenting what, what he's actually talking about. It reminds me of things like, uh, you know, I think there was at one point the, the Tories called something the Betrayal Act, um, or they nicknamed it that, you know, mm, trying to make these things stick, right. you know, stick, you know, it's flagrantly misrepresentative. Throughout the speech, then, he also talks about home rule as if it were independence. Listen to him talking about repeal of the union and, you know, um, mm. separation from, from Britain and things. That's not what the issue is at all. It's home rule within the UK, right? You know, the home rule that we're talking about back then wasn't even anywhere near as liberal in its granting of autonomous powers as like current day devolution in Scotland or Wales. And then there's this characterization of the Irish nationalists as foreign forces, agents of foreign gold. Um, the idea that, you know, uh, you know like, the, well, there's too much to unpack there, so I'm going to jump on. There's, uh, there's also the characterization of the British government as have be, having been enchanted, like enchanted by a, like mm. a snake oil salesman who is Gladstone. You know, they've lost their wits. They're listening to this charming, spellbinding man. But you, the normal people, know the truth. It's terrifying in a way, you know, like, I think it's terrifying because it's so familiar. It's eerily redolent. It's, yeah, it's prophetic. And yeah, it's like he's writing a script that's still getting reused today. Mm. I was exactly like when you were reading that out, I was sort of like writing down notes like, okay, I have to mention this like in our (laughs) debrief. So I better save some of it from them. But like, I'm thinking about like the... in. I suppose the working class loyalist critique of this kind of rhetoric and what it asks of working class loyalists without taking any of the responsibility for the ultimate consequences and those critiques of what's called big house unionism and so on. But we'll get into all of this afterwards. Yes, we will. We'll have plenty to say in our half pint debrief, which we'll be recording right after the show, everyone, and which, wait for the plug, Naomi, here it comes, you can find 
on our <laughs> Patreon. Yes, you can find our debrief and also loads of extra content bonus episodes. Actually, loads um, at this point. Yeah, they're really manageable. There is loads, yeah. <laughs> um, the address is patreon.com forward slash the Irish passport. And we'll have the link in the show notes. And by doing that, you will support the continued making of the podcast. So thank you. Right. Okay, so back to Randolph and his quote-unquote orange card. You know, you can see why I dragged us back here, because we have to understand that this was the backdrop that was being set up for decades, uh, you know, of further home rule crisis that were going to happen in Ireland soon. Uh, Basically, Randolph has successfully set up the Orange Order as the most vocal opposition to home rule by framing the whole home rule situation as an existential question for Ulster Protestants, and also by setting up the narrative of an Irish nationalist conspiracy, which could destroy the whole empire unless, you know, the Ulster Protestants resisted home rule with all their might, be it violent, be it not. Uh, in a letter published in the Times newspaper later that year, uh, Randolph added the now infamous lines, quote, Ulster will fight and Ulster will be right. The actual parliamentary vote on Gladstone's first home rule bill took place on the 8th of June, 1886, and to the immense relief of the Conservative Party, it was defeated by 30 votes. It was official, there would be no home rule for Ireland. But in Ulster, Randolph Churchill and his Conservative accomplices had set in motion a series of events now that would be nigh-on impossible to control. Something they probably didn't particularly take into account, for instance, was the context of sectarian tension on the ground in the industries of Ulster's cities and towns. In the decades after the Great Famine, the fairly prosperous and industrial city of Belfast, you know, just like Glasgow, London or New York, it had been inundated with Irish Catholic migrants. And by 1886, the demographics of the city had changed considerably, with Catholics now representing about a third of the population. After the First World War, later on, thousands of Protestant men would return from the trenches to find their jobs having been taken up by Catholic migrants. That created huge tensions in itself with the city's mostly Protestant workforce. There was a general fear around these decades among the Protestant working class that impoverished Catholics, who were often willing to work longer hours for less, would eventually oust them out of Belfast and from their jobs entirely. Already, Catholics were being systematically relegated to the most menial jobs in Belfast to maintain the well-paying positions for the Protestant majority. So, in that context, the overt vilification of Irish nationalists as covert agents of Catholic Rome by a major figure in the British government like Randolph Churchill, that had explosive potential. Mm. On the day that that first Home Rule Bill was defeated, in 1886, the Protestants of Belfast flooded out onto the streets in celebration, but very soon those celebrations turned to violence. Revelers started to burn Catholic homes and businesses, and when the police and army tried to put a stop to the rioting, they were denounced as agents of Gladstone trying to oppress the loyal Ulster Protestants. A few days later, of course, were the 12th of July celebrations, which resulted in even more violent clashes between Protestants and Catholics. But this, of course, was just an augur of things to come. In the backdrop of all of this, Gladstone didn't give up his quest for home rule. He put forth another home rule bill in 1893, and this time he got it through the House of Commons, but it was vetoed by the House of Lords. That only made matters worse. Irish nationalists were incredibly frustrated that their huge mandate was being ignored, while Ulster Protestants were constantly being reminded that home rule was a real and imminent threat. Okay, so we can see that the foundations of orange versus green were set in place during this first home rule bill, and that the underlying foundation of that never really went away. 
In fact, because the Home Rule crisis ended up going on for so, so long, Protestant outrage was stoked and kindled again and again, right? Um, because when the Conservatives saw how effective it was to play the orange card, as Randolph Churchill had put it, they quickly learned that they could return to playing the orange card whenever it was expedient to do so. So let's fast forward 20 years to 1912. The British Prime Minister was now a man named Herbert Asquith, and he and his Liberal government were trying once again to push through Home Rule. At this point, the Irish Parliamentary Party, remember them? They held the balance of power in Westminster. John Redmond was the new leader of the Irish Parliamentary Party, and he had promised to support Asquith's government, but only if Asquith agreed to introduce another Home Rule bill. This new proposal was also a much more liberal version of Home Rule than what had been put forth before. It was much more similar to the kind of devolution that exists in Scotland or Wales today. As expected, the bill passed through the Commons, and then, like clockwork, the Lords vetoed it. However, by this point, the law had been changed, meaning that the Lords' veto could only stand for two years. So Asquith reintroduced the bill in 1913, and as he expected, it was vetoed again, but then he reintroduced it again in 1914, meaning that the Lords were out of vetoes. To the immense frustration of the Conservatives, the bill was passed. Right. Now, in light of everything we've just discussed, just think about how this situation would have gone down in Protestant Ulster. Each and every time the Liberals introduced a new Home Rule bill to the Commons, like once a year at this stage, their opponents went back to riling up Ulster Protestants as much as they possibly could. Now, one of these opponents was the Dublin barrister Edward Carson, um, who we mentioned back in our previous episode. He had turned his hand to politics in 1892, and being part of the old Protestant elite, he was quite invested in the maintenance of the Union. Uh, basically, Carson planned to employ the exact same strategy as Randolph Churchill had. Uh, similar to Randolph Churchill, Carson did didn't have any great respect for the Orange Order uh, originally. He had joined as a young man, and then he left it immediately in disgust, and he denounced the Orange Order as old-fashioned <laughs> and irrelevant, you know. But now, just like Randolph Churchill, he kind of comes back and becomes Mr. Orangeman, because he understands that in order to prevent home rule on the island of Ireland as a whole, he had to play the orange card in Ulster, and this time it had to work. In September 1911, a crowd of some 50,000 people came from Belfast and beyond to hear Carson speak. Almost exactly a year later, as Asquith was trying to force through the Home Rule Bill for a second time, Carson came back to Belfast for what he called Ulster Day, when he became the first signatory of the Ulster Covenant. This was basically a huge petition wherein the signatories pledged that they would never accept Home Rule. It's worth taking a look at this covenant because it lays out in a kind of contractual form what exactly would be the stance of Ulster Unionists. Um, interestingly, there was a different version for men and for women. So here's the men's version first. Being convinced in our consciences that home rule would be disastrous to the material well-being of Ulster, as well as of the whole of Ireland, subversive of our civil and religious freedom, destructive of our citizenship and perilous to the unity of the empire, we whose names are underwritten, men of Ulster, loyal subjects of his gracious majesty King George V, humbly relying on the God whom our fathers in days of stress and trial confidently trusted, do hereby pledge ourselves in solemn covenant 
throughout this our time of threatened calamity to stand by one another in defending for ourselves and our children our cherished position of equal citizenship in the United Kingdom and in using all means which may be found necessary to defeat the present conspiracy to set up a home rule parliament in Ireland. And in the event of such a parliament being forced upon us, we further solemnly and mutually pledge ourselves to refuse to recognise its authority, in sure confidence that God will defend the right we hereto subscribe our names. Right, so yeah, it's it's worth laying this out in full, because this is kind of the contract, right, that's being set up uh, for yes. Ulster Unionism here. Here's the women's version. I just find it so interesting that there's a men's version and a women's version, by the way, when you think about what was happening in the South at the same time with Irish Mm. men and Irish women being put as the first words on the proclamation. Anyway, more of that in the debrief. (laughs) But here's the women's version, um, who, remember, uh, couldn't vote at this stage. We whose names are underwritten, women of Ulster and loyal subjects of our gracious king, being firmly persuaded that home rule would be disastrous to our country, desire to associate ourselves with the men of Ulster in their uncompromising opposition to the Home Rule Bill now before Parliament, whereby it is proposed to drive Ulster out of her cherished place in the Constitution of the United Kingdom, and to place her under the domination and control of a Parliament in Ireland, praying that from this calamity God will save Ireland, we here too subscribe our names." In all, a massive 471,000 people signed the Ulster Covenant, which represented more than half of Ireland's entire Protestant population. Yeah, in fact, the Covenant made such an impression that the famous poet of empire Rudyard Kipling actually wrote a set of verses celebrating this this Covenant. Uh, Here's the final stanza of that poem to give you a flavour. Believe we dare not boast, believe we dare not fear, we stand to pay the cost in all that men hold dear. What answer from the north? One law, one land, one throne. If England drives us forth, we shall not fall alone. So to say that Unionist opposition had been galvanised in Ulster is rather an understatement. Mm. (laughs) Randolph Churchill and Edward Carson had pretty much succeeded in their plan now that there was such fierce opposition among Ireland's Protestants who were supposed to be Britain's allies in Ireland. The implementation of Home Rule seemed really impossible. Mm. But Carson was not finished yet. At this stage, he was leader of a relatively new political party called the Ulster Unionist Council, which would eventually go on to become the Ulster Unionist Party. As head of this party, Carson used the names, he went through the names on the Ulster Covenant to find eligible men to create an army. And he went and recruited from the Ulster Covenant 100,000 men to a new militia designed to oppose any implementation of Irish Home Rule. And this militia was, of course called the Ulster Volunteer Force. Carson was playing a dangerous game here. His strategy, remember, was to make home rule unworkable for all of Ireland. He believed that the fierce resistance shown by Ulster would force Irish nationalists further south to back off on their demands for home rule. Of course, what happened was the exact opposite. Shortly after the formation of the Ulster Volunteer Force in 1912, Irish nationalists formed a counter-militia, the Irish Volunteers, to protect the passage of Home Rule. And as we know from our most recent two episodes, the formation of this essentially nationalist army was to have historical consequences for the future of Ireland, you know, in decades to come. And more than this, Carson was dangerously flirting with an idea that was increasingly being floated about in Westminster. That if Home Rule were enacted, 
the Protestants of Ulster would simply not go along with it and that there would have to be some kind of political partition on the island. Now, there were lots of suggestions in the air about this. The Prime Minister uh, Asquith, for instance, he suggested that in the interest of avoiding a civil war between the Ulster Volunteer Force and the Irish Volunteers, that an amendment could be added to the Home Rule Act, and that amendment would exclude Protestant Ulster from self-government on a temporary basis until all this calmed down. Now, in those conversations, it was never really specified how long that kind of temporary exclusion might go on, or which parts of Ulster exactly would be concerned. Um, But Carson saw this suggestion also as yet another weapon, basically. Uh, He thought, in his mind, he said, you know, Irish nationalists are never going to accept the partition of the island. They will not go along with that. Um, So once, you know, that's a threat, they can't go forward with their home rule project, right? So he throws his support behind this suggestion as another way to make home rule unworkable. And this, as we know, of course, would come back to bite him in a few years' time. So what happened when the third Home Rule Bill passed? Well, actually, nothing happened, because just as it went through, of course, it's 1914. World War I broke out, meaning that everything was put on hold. If you've listened to our 1916 episode, you'll know that this was a major context for that rebellion. Home Rule for Ireland had technically been passed through Westminster, but it was officially suspended in implementation for the duration of the war. The promise of the Irish Parliamentary Party was that if the Irish proved their loyalty to Britain by fighting in World War One, then Home Rule would be implemented as promised in recompense for that. Mm. And of course, not all Irish people were convinced. Uh, by militarising the Ulster Unionists, Edward Carson had kind of unwittingly helped to militarise the entire Irish situation. And now there was increasing momentum building behind the idea of violent revolution. By now, remember, many Irish nationalists had just lost faith in the workings of the Westminster Parliament. Remember, this had been going on since the 1870s. They had had majorities in government for 30 years, and they still hadn't seen Home Rule getting passed or implemented at this stage. There was no guarantee this time that the British would hold true to their promise, firstly, and also it looked like Ulster Unionists might stimmy the whole implementation of Home Rule anyway. You know, for a lot of people in Ireland, it seemed like working within the Westminster system had had run its course and they had to do something else. Mm. So as we've covered in the last few episodes, a faction of Republican rebels took the situation into their own hands, staging a massive uprising in 1916 to declare complete independence from the United Kingdom, more than Home Rule, and its parliament, and to establish a completely separate Irish Republic on the island. Two years later, the island erupted into a war of independence. Okay, right. So let's let's look at the place of partition in the war of independence. This is supposed to be an episode about the war of independence, um, after all. <laughs> uh, but you understand, listeners, you understand why I, you know, you do need to understand this background to understand what's happening in 1919. So in 1919, we have this extraordinary situation in Ireland. Britain has lost control of much of the island, which is now paying its taxes to and following the laws of the rebel government, Dáil Éireann. Uh, in whole swathes of the country, the police have fled their posts and the IRA, uh, formerly the Irish Volunteers, have become the dominant military authority. The Dáil has delegates travelling the world, lobbying foreign leaders to officially recognise um, the Irish Republic as an independent state. Money is flooding in from Irish Americans across the Atlantic to, to help the Republican cause. And 
In order to try and regain some semblance of control over the country, London has sent in these thousands of black and tans who are um, subjecting the country to violence and arson and uh, uh, explosions of uh, terrible things happening everywhere in a bloody guerrilla war. All this time, it's weird to think about it, but all this time, officials at Westminster were still kind of sitting around tables and discussing what they should do about home rule. You know, this is absolute madness. Uh, But that's what's going on, yeah. They didn't realise they'd been superseded by events. Mm -hmm. Um, So, obviously, as inevitable as Irish independence appeared to Irish nationalists, in Westminster, the predominant view was still that this whole war of independence thing was an anomaly, that it was still possible for things to go back to normal in Ireland and for it to settle back down as part of the UK. And in a way, you can see how they got that impression, Mm. because all of this happened very, very fast. Only six years earlier, they were on the brink of bringing in home rule. Exactly. And home rule was this thing that the Irish nationalists had been fighting for for half a century. It didn't seem to make sense that the nationalists suddenly didn't want that anymore and that they would accept nothing less than total independence. So a lot of people in Westminster, including the new Prime Minister, David Lloyd George, they felt that if London could just calm this situation down and implement home rule like the nationalists had always wanted, then it might be the key to resolving this whole mess. So in September 1919, despite the fact that much of the Irish population had in practice seceded from the United Kingdom, Lloyd George put together a committee to design a system of home rule for Ireland definitively. This committee, under enormous pressure as you can imagine, pretty much decided to call Edward Carson and the Ulster Unionists on their bluff. You know, they were kind of out of time now. War was raging. They had to do this now. Um, So if Carson and the Unionists didn't want to be ruled by a majority Catholic assembly in Dublin, they wouldn't be. Uh, Instead, Westminster was going to create two home rule jurisdictions, one for the Protestant North to officially be called Northern Ireland and one for the Catholic South to officially be called Southern Ireland. Like Asquith had proposed, this would probably be a temporary situation uh, in their minds, but that all depended on how things went. Right now, they just had to get something done. Mm. So this idea, this partition... Um, was formalised in the Government of Ireland Bill of 1920. So right in the middle of the War of Independence, you had this earthquake, really, of the island being split in two in terms of jurisdictions. A new Home Rule Parliament would be established now in Belfast to govern Northern Ireland, and a Dublin Home Rule Parliament would govern the territory to be known as Southern Ireland, while both jurisdictions would remain part of the UK. And that's an important detail to remember here when we think about the partition of Ireland, that the original partition was never actually designed to create two separate national entities. When the border was drawn in Ireland, it was drawn as an internal border within the UK. So originally, all those geopolitical problems that we've talked about before on the podcast and the shape and form of the Irish border, they wouldn't have been so much of a problem because both sides of the border were supposed to remain in UK territory anyway. Also, since the Ulster counties of Monaghan, Donegal and Cavan were predominantly nationalist and Catholic, these were placed on the southern side of the border, with the six counties of Fermanagh, Derry, Antrim, Armagh and Tyrone ensuring a solid Unionist majority in the new territory of Northern Ireland. This was designed to quell any fears at all that home rule could ever result in a Catholic takeover in the north. It also meant that the Catholic minority within the border of Northern Ireland was particularly vulnerable to sectarian policy drawn up by a now predominantly Protestant assembly who wanted to ensure continued Unionist dominance. Here's Conor Mulva again. Home rule in Northern Ireland 
had safeguards for minorities built into it. So that, that was safeguards for Protestants in the South and for Catholics in the North. And it was baked into this two-state solution dual bill in 1920. Um, but we can see through sectarian work practices, uh, sectarian legislation, sectarian policing, that uh, both the role of the Crown, so the actual United Kingdom government and the Crown as the kind of guarantors of civil liberties in Northern Ireland and the Northern Irish government fall down at all points on their ability to be even-handed and non-sectarian and how they deal with the, the Catholic population in the North. While Lloyd George might have hoped that Home Rule would bring some calm to Ireland, all hell broke loose pretty much immediately. Many unionists were horrified at what had just happened. The whole idea of unionism before this was to resist Home Rule on the whole island, uh, not just part of it. This whole concept of uh, there being a separate northern part was, was new. Um, and now, after all the resistance against Home Rule, there were not one, but actually two Home Rule jurisdictions on the island. Um, in particular, unionists living in the south were now completely at a loss. Because of partition, they had been cut off completely from the majority of their political allies in Ulster. If Home Rule had been enacted on the whole island, Ulster Protestants would have been a formidable force in any devolved government. But now, after partition, Southern Unionists would become a tiny minority, infinitely smaller than the Catholic minority in the North, with practically no voice in this new Southern Irish Assembly. Unsurprisingly then, what we see is a profound split happening on the Unionist political front. Because you have all these Unionists who live um, outside this new jurisdiction of Northern Ireland, who right now, they just need to stop partition above all else, right? So these southern, mostly southern unionists, they broke away from the Irish Unionist Alliance in 1919, and they formed a new unionist party called the Unionist Anti-Partition League. They hoped that they would somehow be able to form a part of the British-led assembly in southern Ireland. But as the Dáil steadily solidified its authority in the south over these years, those hopes just, you know, disappeared very quickly. Uh, the Southern Irish Assembly never actually came into being, despite existing in theory for about a year. Um, when plans for the Free State were drawn up in 1921, a lot of those Southern Unionist leaders, they had little choice but to just throw in their lot with the independent state. So many of them ended up joining Shannadaran, which is the Irish upper house. And that was kind of popularly seen as a political home for Ireland's former Unionists and for the old landed elite, you know, sometimes they were nationalist or Unionists, uh, within the independent state. Mm. Uh, some other Unionists joined the Common Gael party uh, later on, which is now called Fine Gael, uh, because that was seen as less resistant to continued political ties with the UK than the main nationalist parties. Uh, but either way, basically, Unionists in the South integrated into the frameworks um, of politics uh, in the independent state. And I think that's a really important point to remember here because, you know, effectively, Southern Unionists became absorbed uh, into the free state. And, you know, we have to remember that within the free state, there were a lot of political elements that were still quite pro-British, right? That were still pro-close ties with Britain. You know, there was kind of unionist strands built into the framework of the independent state, even though it had been built predominantly by nationalists. And that's what unionism became in Ireland. And that kind of, I don't know, that kind of like melted away in various ways. But it's, you know, there's still kind of strands of it that you can see um, in the framework of how the Irish state was built. But what it meant, of course, was that effectively, you know, unionism... Be, by being absorbed like that, disappeared completely, almost completely as a political force south of the border. And that just creates such a stark difference all of a sudden uh, between the Unionist, predominantly Unionist North, and the Nationalist South. There was huge dismay, of course, among many Unionists in the North as well. 
Like in a weird way, partitioning the island made the journey to independence for the southern 26 counties much more fluid because the orange card had effectively been removed from the equation there. Uh, when the territory formerly known as Southern Ireland left the United Kingdom in 1922, many Irish Unionists felt that they had lost out on all fronts. Ironically, having fought home rule for decades, the only part of Ireland that now ended up with home rule was Protestant Ulster. The rest of the island left the UK entirely, uh, breaking up the Union and rendering the prospect of the whole island coming back under direct London rule practically unthinkable. Unionism in most of the island, in fact, pretty much became a defunct political position since there was no union to speak of there anymore. It's not just an independence struggle. It's a revolution of government in the island of Ireland. The unionists didn't ask for home rule. In fact, it's the one thing they didn't want in 1912 to 14. And they fight vehemently to a, a, avoid home rule and oppose home rule at all points and by all means. But when it comes around to 1919, 1920, and a home rule act or bill is back on the table, it's finally a two state solution under uh, Walter Long, who's this kind of Irish policymaker within the British Conservative Party. And he proposes the first two state solution to the Irish question in that, that uh, Government of Ireland Act of 1920. And the unionists finally get behind this and they say, OK, well, you know, the best way to insulate ourselves from dangers in the United Kingdom as a whole, and particularly to our rebellious South, is to go alone. And Ulster will, will do this by itself. So this is where they essentially get the only measure of home rule in the island of Ireland. So the unionists run a home rule state with all the inherent problems and pitfalls that come with a home rule state from 1921 up to 1972. Now, famously, as the British House of Commons celebrated the successful passing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty uh, in Westminster in 1922, uh, Edward Carson spat back at his colleagues in the Conservative Party with all their cheer. Now, if you do read the transcript from the Commons that day, it is quite something. You have all of these politicians sitting around the House of Commons saying, didn't we do a great job in Ireland? Like, they really are saying this to each other. You know, bravo, gentlemen, and all this, you know, when the place is an absolute mess that they left behind them. But, um, you know, they're very happy with the fact that they got a treaty written and they're congratulating themselves. And you can imagine how Edward Carson felt sitting there looking at, at this when, you know, here was Ulster stuck with home rule, right? And so he says this famous line, what a fool I was. I was only a puppet, and so was Ulster, and so was Ireland, in the political game that was to get the Conservative Party into power. Like everybody else, you have betrayed Ulster. What has Ulster done? I will tell you what Ulster has done. She has stuck too well to you, and you believe that because she is loyal, you can kick her as you like. So, yeah, quite a quite a, a historical moment there uh, for unionism, this complete disillusionment with what had happened. We'll talk more, of course, about that treaty in our next instalment. But coming back to the War of Independence, one of the horrible consequences of partition was an explosion of animosity between North and South. So in early 1920, the city of Derry elected its first Catholic mayor, which led to nationalists celebrating what they saw as the fall of unionist dominance in the city. Within a few weeks, violence had broken out between the city's nationalist and unionist populations, involving not only the IRA and the Royal Irish Constabulary, but also the Ulster Volunteer Force, which had been heavily armed in the preceding years. 
Catholics were burnt out of their homes in, in majority Protestant areas of Derry, and in retaliation, the IRA burnt out Protestant homes in Catholic areas. Violence became so intense that an army gunship was called in, with over a thousand soldiers deployed and martial law declared. In July 1920, during the Orange Marching Season, there was a mass meeting of Protestant workers in the city of Belfast, with the aim of expelling all nationalists from the city's shipyards. An estimated seven to 8,000 Catholic or Protestant nationalist workers were driven from the Belfast shipyards that day, and in response, nationalist mobs began to attack Unionist workers. Strikingly, the now leader of the Ulster Unionist Party, and soon-to-be Prime Minister of Northern Ireland, a man named James Craig, he encouraged Belfast workers to continue driving out nationalists. Uh, he attended an unveiling of the Union Jack flag at the Belfast shipyards after these expulsions. And he uh, is recorded as saying, Do I approve of the actions you boys have taken in the past? I say yes. Pogroms against Catholic families and subsequent IRA retaliations started breaking out all over the new jurisdiction of Northern Ireland. In August 1920, the IRA assassinated an RAC inspector in the mainly Unionist town of Lisburn, County Antrim, who they suspected of being responsible for the murder of Cork's Lord Mayor, Tomás McCurtain. Within hours, a loyalist mob had formed in the town and started burning Catholic properties in revenge for the killing. Over 300 Catholics were burnt out of their shops and houses, and about a 1,000 Catholics fled the town. Soon afterwards, violence began to break out in the industrial centres of Belfast, with Protestant workers attacking Catholics and forcing them out of the workplace. In, in the northeast, it really comes down to community defence. Uh, from 1920 to 1922, there is what's referred to by many as a pogrom, uh, across the northeast, centering on Belfast, where loyalists and agents of the state are engaged in sectarian conflict with the Catholic community, and the IRA are acting both to disrupt the Crown forces and also to protect the Catholic community through this. This is the nature of of the conflict in the north. It's a sectarianized conflict. It doesn't follow the same chronology as the War of Independence. And it's very much around community defence. We have widespread, uh, first of all, the ejection of Catholics from the shipyards where unionist workers, uh, again, many of them demobilised uh, from the front and returning to their jobs, start to eject Catholics from the shipyards. Then the burning out of Catholic homes, particularly in West Belfast. Um, and remembering West Belfast isn't a particularly Republican area, but there we see widespread burning out of Catholic homes and ultimately Catholic refugees having to come south. Now, I found one kind of interesting insight into the pogroms against nationalists in Belfast in a small little booklet that was printed in the Irish Free State in 1922. Uh, it's called Facts and Figures of the Belfast Pogrom, 1920 to 1922. Um, the author's name is given as G.B. Kenna, but we know now that that was a pseudonym. He was actually a Belfast priest named Father John Hassan. Now, this is a really interesting piece of writing for loads of reasons. It was originally commissioned by Michael Collins. Um, Collins realised that the Unionist newspapers in the Northeast were mostly whitewashing these pogroms that were happening in Belfast, um, and they were preventing reports of what was happening from getting to Britain and to the rest of the world. So he had this idea to like commission someone to put together a big list of all the evidence and official reports of um, what was happening to Catholics uh, in Belfast. And the guy who ultimately got commissioned for this job was John Hassan. And considering the context for all this, you can see why he wanted to write it under a pseudonym. So, I mean, keep in mind, this is not a neutral report. 
the exact opposite of that. This is part of a propaganda campaign. John Hassan is extremely careful to leave out IRA violence. Um, but that aside, I think it's interesting because it gives like a first-hand perspective of a Belfast nationalist, right? Somebody who is living in the city, who knew the city and who was there to witness what was happening at the time. One thing that Hassan brings up is the possibility that unionist leaders were particularly invested in stoking up sectarian conflict because Catholic and Protestant workers had recently come together to stage an industrial strike. It was probably the only occasion in the industrial history of Belfast, he writes, when the reactionary employing classes of the city felt that their hold was slipping and that the old game of setting Protestant and Catholic workers at each other's throats was failing. No observer of industrial conditions in the North could fail to be struck by the fact that sectarian bitterness was all to the interests of the employing classes and calculated to prevent the free working of normal trade union activity. Hassan also describes the organisation of the pogroms in July 1920. This is how he sets the scene. A meeting of all the orange elements in the shipyards was called for the dinner hour. Immediately after the meeting, a violent onslaught was made upon the Catholic employees as well as on a dozen or two of Protestants who had refused to bow the knee to Carson. Hundreds were surrounded and kicked, several were thrown into the water and pelted with bolts and other missiles as they struggled for life. Since that day, over two years ago, no Catholic, with the exception I understand of one or two office hands, has been allowed to earn a living in Belfast's chief industrial concerns, the shipyards. One of the newspaper articles he includes in his annex is from the British Daily News, which reported in August 1920 that all but a few of the business premises of Belfast Catholics, except those in the very heart of the city or in the Catholic stronghold known as the Falls, have now been destroyed. So, in reaction to the expulsion of Catholics from Belfast shipyards and the like, um, the Dáil declared a boycott on the city. Their position was that Belfast was under the jurisdiction of Dáil Éireann, and according to the law of Dáil Éireann, it was illegal to discriminate in employment on the basis of religion. Uh, so soon, the IRA started preventing goods from getting to and from the city of Belfast, and of course that only strengthened Unionist resolve against the rebel government, and it really rendered the prospect of winning over northern Protestants even more remote than it ever was. Meanwhile, the British government made use of the Ulster Volunteer Force by recruiting a lot of its members into an official new Ulster Special Constabulary, which, like in the rest of Ireland, was kind of designed as a new police force equipped to defeat the IRA. The question of the Belfast boycott, and I must say to this day, this is the, the hardest thing for me to wrap my head around, maybe with kind of post-1998, post-Good Friday Agreement goggles on, but I don't fully understand why the Dáil government decides it's a good idea to boycott goods coming from Belfast and the Northeast as part of their campaign against unionism between 1920 and 1921 uh, and even into 1922. Um, that campaign has huge detrimental effects and in many ways it kind of solidifies partition because businesses in the South are looking out from businesses on the island of Ireland that are from Belfast, that therefore they equate with unionism and they're destroying those goods, they're stopping the transit of those goods and they're encouraging people not to buy those goods. Um, and, you know, if we talk about the united Irish approach of Sinn Féin in this period, it's just, it doesn't particularly make sense to me. Now, I know it's something that Sinn Féin are really behind and, you know, reading through the cabinet minutes, but the Belfast boycott comes up very frequently in that. And in that, um, we see 
people, you know, really getting behind this idea of boycotting Belfast goods. But I see it as just counterproductive to a united Ireland front. And I, I don't understand the rationale that the Dáil government has for it, but it's something they'd really throw their shoulders into um, in the period 1920 and 21 in particular. By 1921, not only did you have an illegal rebel government controlling most of the country while the British administration were struggling to regain their authority, but in the middle of it all, you have the launch of a new devolved parliament in Belfast with an Orangeman, James Craig, fittingly becoming the first prime minister of the territory. Hassan also talks about how the previous two years of violence undermined any possibility of trust in the new Northern Irish Assembly among the Catholics who lived in the territory. In June 1921, he writes, the government of the six counties was called into existence. The premier of the new government had gone out of his way a few months before to assure the very men who had driven thousands of Catholics permanently from the work that gave them and theirs a living who had been active in the works of murder, wounding, looting, burning, sacking and church wrecking, that he fully approved of what they had done. Most of the other members of the government had records of fierce bigotry. The Parliament, in the eyes of any Northern Catholic, could appear little else than a glorified Orange Lodge. For much of the Protestant majority, however, it now seemed like going it alone in a Northern Ireland Assembly was their only remaining option. On the 3rd of May 1921, the first elections for the jurisdiction of Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland were held, solidifying a deep chasm between the two parts of the island. In the north, the elections were treated almost as a referendum about partition, and that's more or less exactly what it became. There was a turnout of 88%, and as you would expect, the Ulster Unionist Party won a two-thirds majority, with the remaining third coming out for Sinn Féin and the Irish Parliamentary Party. That result was actually a bitter disappointment to Sinn Féin. They had actually really hoped to win over a lot of Ulster Protestants to the cause of Irish independence. Remember, they did have this kind of rhetorical idea of the 1798 rebellion. Like, this was part of their tradition. This history of Ulster Protestants being, like, the kind of Republicans par excellence, you know? Like, the like the, the original Republican force on the island of Ireland. That always kind of stayed with the Republicans in the South. And I suppose they kind of deluded themselves a little bit. They had even created a, a special leaflet campaign for Ulster. It's called The Unionist, and it was distributed around the North. And it, it warned, it was mostly economical in its warnings. Uh, it warned Protestants about, uh, you know, obstacles that would be faced by this six-county territory if it tried to develop its economy. And it also called on the working-class Unionists to stand with working-class Catholics to, against the abuses of employers and the upper classes. And I think maybe, I think maybe that's why Sinn Féin was able to delude itself so much, you know, because... It must have been hard for them to understand why do you want to do something that's so plainly in the interests of people who are exploiting you, right? You know, remember the Republican campaign was really infiltrated with this socialism, right? It must have been hard to understand why the workers of Belfast were kind of kowtowing to people who clearly, you know, cynically, like Randolph Churchill, didn't have their interests in mind. In the South, the Dáil allowed the Southern Ireland uh, elections to take place uncontested, but it since it didn't recognise the jurisdiction of Southern Ireland, the elections were simply treated as Dáil elections instead. Sinn Féin won 124 out of 128 seats, and they immediately went back to work in the Dáil, alongside the minority of nationalist representatives who had won seats in Northern Ireland's elections. 
the Southern Ireland Assembly was completely ignored and no government ever sat for it. Of course, that was the beginning and the end of the project known as Southern Ireland, uh, which, by the way, is why Irish people kind of get annoyed when we hear people <laughs> referring to Southern Ireland, because like Southern Ireland really was a real thing. You know, it was a real political jurisdiction, which um, uh, disappeared a long time ago. Mm. Within the year, everything would change utterly once again. As the War of Independence came to a head, the British and Irish government would soon come together to negotiate a treaty to end the war. Now, with the new jurisdiction of Northern Ireland looking on very keenly from across the border, the future of the whole island was all to play for. And that is for our next instalment uh-huh. of this mammoth War of Independence <laughs> miniseries. Uh, we really hope that you liked this episode. And of course, if you want to hear more, including our after show debrief on this episode, you can sign up to support the podcast on Patreon. Just head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Irish Passport. All right. Until next time, everyone. Slán. Slán, everyone.